Welcome. It's lovely to see you all. So a really warm welcome from me. I'm Becky Francis. I'm director here at the UCL Institute of Education. So thanks so much for joining us this evening, whether in person, and there are very many of you, which is lovely to see, or by live stream, and there are very many more of you there as well. Now, before we start, some of you will have seen that um, I'm soon to leave the IOE to take up the role of uh, CEO of the Education Endowment Foundation. But these debates were one of the first things that I instigated as director of the IOE um, because I wanted to see the IOE take a much more active role in educational debates um, around education and social policy. And I'm so delighted by the reception that they've had. You know, the turnout today is absolutely illustrative of that. So thanks to all of you, both in the audience and the many panellists over the last couple of years who've dipped in and out of our, our live debates. And they'll continue. So do look out for the next chair. And thanks, as always, to the TES as well for uh, supporting us and partnering with us on the debates and helping to spread the word. And we value that enormously. So a little bit of the usual housekeeping. Uh, first of all, for the tweeters among you, the hashtag is hash IOE debates. That's all one word, hash IOE debates. And that's also the way to put comments through um, and questions to the panel through the live stream as well. We're not expecting a fire drill, so if the alarm sounds, we'll take the doors out on this side and up towards uh, Bedford Way. And though anyone that can't take the stairs should just move to the doors on your left, and a fire marshal will assist you out of an alternative route from the building. And so, to the debate itself. Now, for a long time now, the political rhetoric in the UK has been about social mobility and the need to break the link between individual family background and where that individual gets to in life in terms of their career and their earnings and so on. But more recently, the notion of social justice has been begun to be applied more widely uh, and increasingly as a new underpinning principle for public policy. One problem with this, and it's quite an important problem, is that neither of those terms is very precise. And there was never much recognition of the fact that social mobility, for example, entails downward as well as upward mobility. And equally, what greater social justice would look like in practice or on the ground is often very open to interpretation. So we wanted to take a closer look at those concepts and think about what they mean in practice, and particularly from a school's ed wider education and social policy perspective. What would education and social policy need to look like to make social justice a reality? And how should colleges, universities, and schools respond to this agenda? And so to answer those questions, of course, we're going to be helped by our esteemed panellists. But before we turn to the panellists, let me ask a question to the audience here in the room. And I'm going to need a show of hands, but I'll put two questions to you first. So in your view, 
What's more important to achieving social justice in education? Is it what, what happens inside the classroom or is it what happens outside the school gates? So I'd like a show of hands for those of you who think, is it what happens inside the classroom? A few. And what about um, those of you who think it's what happens outside the school gates? Wow. Well, that's a very, very clear majority for the second. Of course, I've immediately set you up by presenting a rather false dichotomy, haven't I? Because I'm sure we'd all agree there's probably shades of grey in between. But this is a brilliant start, you know, showing, showing uh, the issues as you see them. So turning now to our panellists. Louise Archer is Karl Mannheim Professor of Sociology of Education here at the IOE. Her research focuses on educational identities and inequalities, particularly in relation to gender, ethnicity and social class. She's examined the educational experience of Muslim pupils, British Chinese pupils and the minority, minority ethnic middle classes as well as looking at widening participation in higher education and, most recently, inequalities in science participation. She's currently directing a 10-year study looking at differences in young people's science and career aspirations aged 10 to 19, the brilliant Aspires project. And Dan Moreau is CEO of the Woodland Academy Trust, a family of five primary schools in the London borough of Bexley and North Kent. Dan's held leadership roles in primary, all through, and secondary schools, where he's built up a really impressive record, leading schools to be outstanding in every category of Ofsted inspection and turning schools from special measures to good in all categories within just 12 months. That's pretty incredible, Dan. Thank you. And Aisha Small is an author, speaker, and head of strategy at national youth charity YHA, where she joined from the Think and Action Tank Centre for Education and Youth. Prior to that, Aisha was an assistant head teacher and maths teacher for, for 14 years. And as well as being a columnist, blogger, and podcaster, Aisha's contributed to books covering education, mental health, and gender. She's author of The Unexpected Leader, a book that broadens the narrative around who and what makes a great leader. And finally, Dr. Jason Arde is not with us yet, but we're hoping he will join us and we'll be able to seamlessly incorporate him if he arrives in time. So I'll introduce him in his absence. He's an assistant professor in sociology at Durham University. And his research focuses on race, education and social justice, mainly in relation to the higher education sector, but also schools. And alongside his academic work, Jason's a trustee of the Runnymede Trust, sits on the advisory panel for the Centre for Labour and Social Studies and a school governor. He was formerly a steering committee member for Comprehensive Future, and he was co-editor of the 2015 Runnymede School Report, Race, Education and Inequality in Contemporary Britain. And as I say, we hope that he'll be joining us soon. Uh, but in the meantime, without further ado, we'll turn to our panellists, and we're going to start with Louise setting the context. Louise. Thank you. Um, so... 
I just want to recognise that although I'm going to use the term education policy as if it's a singular thing, I don't mean it as a singular thing. There's not one education policy. There's lots of different sorts. And although some of the examples I'll give will be in the context of national policy, I also mean them to apply at different levels, so localised policy making as well. And what I'm going to say is kind of top level, but I'm hoping when we get to the discussion and the other speakers will be able to deal with more on the ground uh, practical examples too. So I wanted to start off, the, the question of the debate, uh, what if uh, education policy was uh, committed to social justice, implies that it's not already. And although I agree it's not, I think we do need to just start by recognising that not everyone would agree with that position. Um, because it's that time of year and very topical, I did take a, a look at all the uh, main political parties' uh, manifestos. And if you look at those manifestos in the education sections, all of them make claims to social justice. Hello, hi. Um, so, for example, the Conservative Party one says that their policies are about creating a fair and just society. Labour talks about overcoming injustices and inequalities. Liberal Democrats talking about the good of the whole of society. The Green Party, lifelong liberating and accessible to all. Obviously, all the manifestos also recognise that the visions have not yet been achieved or, in manifesto speak, unleashed and unlocked. Uh, but I think it's important to recognise that sometimes people claim to these terms. So what I'm going to do is raise five key questions for feeding into the debate. So the first question I'd say is, well, which and whose definition of social justice are we talking about? So there are lots of different claims. So if you look, for example, the Conservative Party manifesto talks about being unashamedly uh, about equality of opportunity. So we have notions of social justice that are saying it's about treating everyone the same, equality in that sense. But there you also have readings where it can be more about equity. So the idea that it's not about giving the same to everyone, but giving differentially according to need. So we, we don't give everyone the same. Then there can be a stronger reading still of social justice where it's about differential giving, but also about taking down the structures that create the inequalities in the first place. And I think the importance of, I mean, obviously as an academic, I'd always say it's very important we conceptualise our terms or we'd be out of a job. But um, the importance of this is when we use, let's say, the weaker or the more equality-based um, conceptualisations, it leads to different framings of the questions and different ways that we would then approach it and what we'd do about it in practice. So, as Patricia Hill Collins reminds us, if we're using readings that are more of the equality sort, we might be talking about differences in attainment as, as education gaps, rather than a stronger framing where we'd see them as education debts. So, the debt that is owed by society to black students who are not achieving the same rather than seeing it as an issue of a differential intelligence or ability and so on. So I think it's really important that we do think about the way we conceptualise it and, for me, moving towards a stronger conceptualisation of what we mean by social justice. So, for example, in our work, we talk about a socially just education policy as being one that would disrupt and restructure dominant power relations and forms of representation and resource and opportunity. So for us, a social justice uh, education policy would have to meaningly support, benefit and enhance the identities, lives, resources, environments and lived contexts of all young people, not just some. So for us, it's all about putting power at the centre of an understanding of social justice and the disruption of power, the transformation of power. And within this, it's also about recognising that there's what we call the zero-sum game of social justice. 
we don't all win from it. Achieving social justice means that some people have to give up privilege. We can't keep privilege intact and expect that we can achieve social justice. And for us, that is a key challenge that we don't always think is grappled, is recognised. So my second question is, are we talking about a commitment to social justice or a duty to social justice? So for me, they're not the same. We think there has to be some sort of mandatory obligation, an actual duty, otherwise the commitment notion can be very airy-fairy. I'd also say it has to be a primary duty, one that can trump others. Often when we're talking in policy terms, where there are competing uh, demands and uh, considerations. And in the area I've been working in, we often see the economic rationale trumping the social justice rationale. For, so for me, putting the primacy and the duty to social justice at the heart of education policy is central. It should be like a stick of rock that gets written through education policy, not a thing on the side. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if? And I think this can help us see education policy more as in service of society rather than trying to save it. Question three, and these go quicker now. Um, whose policies and processes? Personally, I think education policy is too important to be left to party politics and uh, politicians. I would, uh, I would advocate for more participatory and meaningful models of education policy making. So we don't have education policy that's done to or even for people, but that's done with diverse communities. And that includes young people, teachers, communities more generally. Question four, fast or slow education policy. Uh, currently, again, this is not just at the national level, but it can often feel sort of fast, thin, under-informed and susceptible to vanity projects. Uh, I'm not going to give examples of those because <laughs> it's all being recorded. But um, I think slower, richer, an idea of policy as development, as co-learning, not as a thing that's just done and fired out there, not magic bullets, which always fail. So a socially just approach to education policy, I think, would build in time and reflection for everyone involved in it in a meaningful way. And my fifth question uh, is narrow or broad approaches to education policy. And this, in a way, picks up on Becky's uh, opening statement. Um, often we think of education policy in, in siloed terms or as decontextualised. For me, the socially just vision recognises that everything's interconnected, that we can't talk about what we do with the economy separately to what we're doing with, um, with education. So the neoliberalism, it threads through everything that, you know, determines we don't just have markets and league tables in education as a result of uh, random thoughts. They're all sort of tied together. I think moving past narrow reductive models, whether that's approaches to narrow approaches to what works in education, driving policy, ideas of teachers being technicians rather than professionals, the idea of students as empty vessels or problems, deficit-based notions... Um, all of those, I think, could be rethought. So to conclude, I think if education policy were really driven by social justice, one, it would look very different in terms of how we make and enact policy. It would be done very differently. It would involve different people. And I think, crucially, if we did all of that, it would actually make a difference. <laughs> Thank so. you very much, Louise. That was a brilliant uh, setting out this thing, scene to start with. And over to you, Dan. Thank you. Um, I think, as Louise has just begun uh, incredibly well by saying, how social justice should be advanced um, in education is both complicated and fiercely debated. And in fact, any of you who are on Twitter will see those debates raging pretty much on a daily basis. 
And that's because there are long-standing binaries around the purpose of education that still remain within our discussions nationally and indeed globally. The hierarchies of knowledge that we all look to help to then mean that the routes into social justice can be inherently or overtly politicised. On one side you see vocational versus academic, you see progressive versus traditional, you see skills versus knowledge, and people have picked sides when it comes to discussions around social justice. And these entrenched dichotomies make it incredibly difficult to have conversations that seek to conceptualise education in a different way, in a different field. And I think that one of the areas around that that has caused some issues for myself as an educator and some of our teams are, it does mean that we have been led to disproportionately prioritise outcomes over experiences. For me, social justice almost comes back to that backpack conversation and the idea that every child arrives at the school gate with a backpack. Now, the vast, vast majority of you put your hands up to say that essentially it's outside of the school gates that will have the biggest impact on school ju uh, social justice. And in many ways, you are absolutely correct because it is about what goes into those invisible backpacks. But there are essentially, at the moment, two schools of thought. The first is that when the child arrives at the gate, the backpack should be left there. Then the children come in, they receive a, a strong education focused on outcomes, and that education will provide them with a passport to the future. The ability to have a successful future based on their education, leading them to greater opportunities for economic success and contribution. Others would argue that the focus and need in education is to unpack what is in that backpack, to take any negative experiences or barriers for those children and to work with the individual child to see what the issues are for them being able to achieve. Now, on both sides, there are arguments. The child whose backpack has not been looked at but gets the passport for success will, will do well initially. But some of those barriers may catch up with that child. And in fact, whether it's left at the school gate or not, once they leave school, that backpack is there and those experiences remain there. However, on the other side, it could be that the focus on unpacking what's happening for that individual child, sometimes through therapy, sometimes through other approaches to curriculum, can mean that we're too focused on experience and not focused enough on what the outcome for that child should be, which means they then don't get a passport for their future. Now, as with most things in life, the answer is not binary. It is about looking at it from a slightly more holistic and indeed forgiving approach. I know that Within education, we tend to go into camps, and I know I am very guilty of that myself. However, it has to be about a discussion on how we can look to engagement and outcomes and ensure that we've got a personalization which doesn't take away from expectations. And that is what will actually unlock individual abilities to, to come to social justice through education. Now, for myself, I'm from a background where I was a pupil premium child, within a single parent family, et cetera, et cetera. I went to a primary school in a selective area and I passed my 11 plus and I was the only one in my year group. So I went to the grammar school up the road. 59 other pupils in my school did not. 20 years later, I went to serve as a head teacher in the primary school I'd been part of. And I saw my peers who had gone to a different form of school, who were then either parents or indeed sometimes grandparents to the children in the primary school. Social mobility 
for me, is a lie. Because my backpack didn't get unpacked, but I did get a passport. And don't get me wrong, I've done very well in education, and I've been able to achieve quite a lot. However, there remain those issues. And the biggest issue, partly arriving here today, is that sense of imposter syndrome. It's going to a, a, a very elite university and feeling like you don't belong. Social justice is about ensuring that the game changes for all. And therefore, I strongly believe that that is a commitment we all need to look to. What that actually means, though, is, is actually quite difficult, because how do we overcome those persistent binaries in education, that it's one or the other, it's this or it's that? How do we overcome the tribal loyalties that exist within education and the politicisation? For me, and it absolutely chimes with what Louise says, education is far too important to be a political issue, because as soon as it becomes a political issue, we seek to find sides, not solutions. And so social justice, in order to not be limited, has to combine both an aspect of reflection and all of us changing our positions slightly to come to an understanding of what it means. The experience of children in our schools is incredibly complex, and the complexity should not be taken away from. But essentially, whilst we are in a position where we see education as an opportunity for a small minority to join a club, then actually all we're doing is saying that that club should exist. And that's one of the fundamental issues, I think, with social mobility versus social justice. But then to achieve social justice, what we're saying is actually the structures that underpin not just education but society have to change. Now, for me, I believe that's about combining what at first seems incredibly difficult to combine, a pragmatic approach to the finances of education and society and, and what education means to many people with that sense of absolute optimism, hope, and, and perhaps even a utopian view of what society should be, and therefore what education can be also. In the trust that I'm lucky enough to be part of, the children's backpacks are unpacked. And we spend a considerable amount of time looking at both the barriers and aspects of educational issues that face a number of our children and indeed families. However, within an accountability framework, it does mean that sometimes that journey is not as fast for those children as it would be if we took a different approach. And therefore, for social justice to be truly part of educational policy and therefore impact on children and families in a, in a really meaningful way, I personally believe that the accountability system needs to be contextualised, not just within background, but more importantly to ensure that school leaders and teachers are trusted really trusted with a degree of autonomy that doesn't take away from expectation but does enhance the delivery for each and every child. I know for me that one of the reasons I was able to pass my 11 plus and, and do what I did was because the head teacher of the school every single day asked how I was, bought me a set of books at Christmas because I loved reading and challenged me on a daily basis and recognised that perhaps we all sometimes need something else. But I will just say this. I have achieved a lot in education, myself. But the thing that I was never able to achieve was to overcome some of those absolute barriers to believing I could do it, and that still remains with me. So education is the key, but achieving it has to be broader than it currently is. Dan, thanks so much, and thanks for bringing experience in as well as outcomes. That's a brilliant challenge you've given us. Thank you.
Jason and welcome. You were introduced at the start because we knew you were on your way and um, the, the, the problem with coming in last is that others have decided what order things are going to fall in. So please, if you're, if you're ready to speak, that would be great. Can everyone hear me okay? Is that right? Uh, first and foremost, um, good evening and how are you all keeping? You all well? Good stuff. Um, I'll leave my, my schoolboy excuses as to why I was late until <laughs> afterwards. So um, in the first instance, um, Becky, thank you so much. It's really good to be here and really good to see all of you. Um, I suppose, you know, we're talking about education and social justice. And I think in the first instance, I think positionality is always a good point to kind of start from. So uh, my background, uh, many moons, well, many moons ago, just under 10 years ago, I was a PE teacher in school. And uh, one of the interesting things with doing this job was watching how aspiration was managed, particularly from a social justice point of view. One of the things I noticed about young, particularly young black learners, is what I would, the kind of idea I had in my head that I used to say to my friend all the time was that um, I feel like they were thrown off the scent. So an example. So they might turn around and say to a teacher, I want to be an astronaut, just generally speaking. And the teacher may say to them, mm, that seems a little bit, that's quite a hard thing to do, but I've heard you're quite good at sport, you're quite good at music. Maybe you should stick to that, because that's what you should do. And what became interesting was looking at this and observing this over a period of time. So watching this student take these kind of subliminal messages year in, year out, for the best part of five years, and then kind of becoming that. And if you tell someone something enough, they become that. And what becomes interesting is kind of looking at your part and how you're kind of complicit in this. So you kind of recognise, okay, what interventions have I put in place to get that student to think differently about things or to engage about things in a different way. And you realise really quickly in terms of, I guess, the rhetoric that's spun and the reality of what's happening. So that kind of praxis link. So you work with people who espouse and are the purveyors of good taste in terms of social justice, but in terms of their actual pedagogical practice, they enact in many ways the complete opposite. And I suppose from that kind of point of view, I started kind of observing this and kind of thinking, okay, what can I do to change this? I suppose, uh, naively, um, I thought this only kind of existed in primary and secondary curricula and education. I wasn't aware, you know, its reach in terms of going into higher education as well, which is where I ultimately um, ended up. And so we kind of find ourselves here where we are now. So I think one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about is really this idea of curriculum and how important it is and the idea that um, fundamentally the question that I would like to pose to all of you is what is the purpose of education? So for me, cent the central purpose of education is to prepare people or one of, the, one of the ideas is to prepare people to take their place within society and currently as you can see in this room we reside in a beautiful, wonderful multicultural society yet we have canons of knowledge and canons of certain things that don't actually align to those kind of egalitarian and societal ideals that we all, I'm sure, hold so dear. So one of the things that I kind of think becomes really important in terms of aspects of social justice is being able to see yourself reflected in the curriculum. And when we think about how we kind of frame these particular canons, things like, for example, fundamental, um, <coughs> fundamental uh, British values, if we think about, you know, migration and that kind of wave of migration in the last 80 to 70 years and how that conception of Britishness has changed, it's interesting how that conception's changed. And this is just ruling out empire, by the way. Let's not go down that road. But like, <laughs> empire aside, if we just think of that kind of, that wave of migration in the last 80 years and we think about the contribution of 
ethnic minorities to Britain as we see it, I think one of the things that becomes really interesting is thinking about fundamental British values and what that means and sitting in a classroom and actually someone explaining to you what this means and you not being able to see yourself versed within that kind of um, discourse, which becomes quite an impactful thing when we kind of reside in this wonderfully multicultural society, but we have these canons that kind of situate Britishness and make it a close relative to whiteness. Um, and it doesn't encapsulate all of those other nuances that come into it in terms of diverse, the hybridity of diversity, multiculturalism, you know, the balancing of varying intersections across sectional, intersectionally across race, gender, disability, religion, etc., etc., sexuality. So I think one of those things that becomes really important is thinking about how we use education as a vehicle to promote tolerance in society. Because interestingly, we kind of have regressed. Um, so 10 years ago, political correctness was a thing, and now you kind of applaud people for saying what's on your mind. You know, you can say what you want, and there are almost no consequences to that. You know, and at the moment, I'm in an interesting situation where I'm teaching a group of students, and we're doing race at Durham, and, uh, and you get... <laughs> I only just got the job, so let me keep my mouth closed, but like... Uh, but but it, it's interesting, right? Because you get, you get this friction. I mean... We did class, and I thought, okay, class is kind of one of those things where that's, that's the safer ground that we all kind of fall to, you know, and we kind of don't want to talk too much about race. And, I, and, you know, I was getting it, just talking about class. So, you know, you start talking about race, and people are like, well, you know, I think this whole whiteness thing and this idea of social justice, I think it's out of hand, and we should be able to say what we think. Okay, well, and, you know, the truth is, you know, majority of black people do commit crime, you know, and they do commit, so, you know, and you end up having to kind of, you're in a situation where you're kind of trying to teach sociology students around this aspect of social justice. And one of the things that you have to end up saying is, okay, well, 10 years ago, do you know what the knife capital of Europe was? So they're like, no, I, I have no idea, but I would imagine it would be somewhere in London. So I'm like, I would like to tell you it was, but it, it was Glasgow, which is 99% in terms of populace, white. So it's not, a, it's not a race issue. You can't assign crimes to races. And what becomes interesting is kind of, listening to students kind of frame these ideas, because I think the, the rhetoric we all lean to is it's an older generation that think in a particular way, but increasingly that kind of misuse of language and that lack of tolerance from a lack of a social justice perspective has lent itself to people being intolerant of the wonderful multicultural society we kind of live in. And I suppose one of the things that I kind of think about in terms of policy is the types of policymakers we have advancing particular discourses in, in education. So we think about the 2014 National Curriculum, who's the person we had enacting that? Um, who's the person we had framing that kind of discourse? Um, one Michael Gove, or the Right Honourable Michael Gove. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I suppose in terms of kind of thinking about um, the people who I guess are the, the gatekeepers, gatekeepers of this, I guess, um, I wouldn't say knowledge, but in terms of framing these kind of lexicons, I think one of the things we kind of need to think about is individually as kind of pedagogues, as educators, as activists, as scholar activists, as community workers, what can we do in kind of, in, kind of in, a, in a micro way and see how we can extend that beyond? Because I think one of the things that's kind of really interesting is this, inter is this idea around values. And I think because we're kind of led by this kind of identity politics, 
people are leaning towards um, particular ways of thinking. And unfortunately, that is infiltrating what happens in our pedagogical spaces. Um, so the taking for granted notion that, you know, because someone is young, they won't think in a particular way. I think we probably need to disabandon that. And I'll use my last nine seconds to apologise again for being late. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Jason, thank you so much. Uh, that was really stimulating and uh, uh, some really good challenges around uh, these issues. About and, and I think coming back to some of the uh, earlier points about entitlement, uh, we'll come back to this notion of the corpus of knowledge later, I'm sure. Um, so without further ado to you, Aisha, thank you. And you're going to round up for us. Okay, so I entered teaching in 2004 with a commitment to social justice, although I wouldn't have called it that at the time. It's not a term I would have understood. I entered via a team, a scheme called Teach First, which now is pretty well known, but at the time nobody had heard of it. It was in its second year. My parents thought I'd completely wasted my engineering degree, which coincidentally I got across the road at the mechanical engineering, at the engineering department at UCL. So I assured them that it was only going to be for two years, so there's nothing to worry about, and then maybe I could make some real money doing something like management consultancy or whatever Teach Firsters do. So fast forward to 2013, so that was 2004, 2013, um, and there I still was in education, interestingly. Uh, my parents had got used to the idea by now, and they were kind of proud of it, I guess, and I was an assistant head. At the time, I kind of, I still do, but I, I wrote a kind of personal blog that's kind of personal and professional, and I dug something out, and I realised I'd written this. So I wrote, I want to see the link between socio-economic background and education outcomes destroyed and banished to history. So that's what I wrote in 2013. I still feel the same thing. And that's probably why I did teach first, although I wouldn't be able to articulate it at the time. Why I then carried on teaching in various leadership positions, and why I later became a researcher in a think tank, as Becky mentioned, uh, before my current role, which is in the charity. Okay, so that's my background. What is social justice? I'm super basic so whenever I get asked to do panels I have to understand that I know what we're talking about and I hear many many phrases all the time and then I'm kind of like well, what does that actually mean so unfortunately I'm not you know as learned as some of my colleagues I like to go back to basics it's probably my background as a math teacher and like a physics geek so I like to do things from first principles also because I'm very lazy and I just don't have to remember things all the time so social justice okay social I went to my dictionary no longer a physical one these days, of course. And it said, social is relating to society or the way that society is organised. Okay, cool. So I understood that. Justice. That's about fairness. It's about fairness in the way that people are treated. Okay, so I understood that. But then within those, there are some terms we also have to make sure we fully understand. So, all right, we're talking about society. What, what is society? Society is the people who live in a country or region, their organisations and their way of life. Okay, got that. What is fairness? Because to me, fairness might mean one thing, to you guys it might mean something else. To the dictionary, it meant treating people equally without favoritism or discrimination. So, all right, I understood that. So from those first principles, my definition of social justice, which I think does try with what you said, is social justice is fairness in the way that we treat people in our country, our region, and our organizations, which I thought, okay, I can understand that, that's, that's fine. I can tell you for a fact that we don't have that. Okay, so we do not currently have that. That's, that's my opinion. I've, I've come off the fence. Um, so, for example, if your child, if you're somebody who's a parent here, um, your child is more likely to be excluded if they fit into one or more of the following categories because people can be more than one thing. Gypsy Roma Traveller communities. 
somebody who is in receipt of SEN or SEND support, if they're Black Caribbean, like me, or if they're claiming free school meals, so any one of those categories. But if you're more than one of those categories, then, I don't know, go home. That's what I think. <laughs> Where'd I get that from? From the recent Timpson review. Okay, so if we're talking about what, how should we underpin um, education policy, what's it been underpinned by in the, the previous few years? Uh, obviously, you know, I worked in the think tank. I've been a teacher for a while. I know education geeks. Um, so I spoke to some of my education geek friends and we were chatting about this and it's the kind of thing we think is fun. So uh, cynically, the first one we came up with is the, it's been underpinned by the need to look good, mm. if I'm going to be blunt about it. Everybody cares about health and education. They're the things that politicians can talk about and everyone will listen. People who've got kids, people are going to go and use a hospital at some point, somebody they care about will. So everyone cares about these things. Therefore, politicians need to be seen to do something, if I'm going to be super cynical about it. More charitably, because, you know, let's be kind to people, it's coming up to Christmas. Um, <laughs> it's been underpinned by the following. So consistency and improvement in terms of standards in schools, that's what the whole labour drive was, you know, education, education, education. Things like national literacy strategy, uh, national numeracy strategy, so consistency, that's around the time that I started teaching. Um, professionalising teachers, something that's not spoken about very often, but yeah, I definitely did feel that when I, when I started teaching, so I would point to things like having to have, at that time, NPQH, if you want to become a head teacher, although they've changed it again, things like NPQSL, fast track was a thing when I started teaching. And then the structures, that's something that Michael Gove was big on, um, but, you know, was, was traced back to um, labour, so that's under the guise of autonomy for schools, things like um, academies, breaking up of local authorities, initial tra teacher training reforms as well, free schools, of course. Desire to be, have a, rich, a population rich in knowledge, okay, that's another thing. Teacher recruitment retention. Social mobility, okay, so that was pretty big up until fairly recently. At this point, I want to say social mobility is absolutely not social justice, it is not. If you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said I was in favour of social mobility. Uh, I was absolutely wrong. That's what I believe now. Um, when you strip it back, social mobility is in fact an individualistic model. A few exceptional people, so people like Dan, people like me, you know, people like Bandless basically, um, can go up the lift in society. Okay? They can go up the lift and uh, in terms of status and skyscraper. But you're basically leaving the levels untouched and exactly the same. And only a few people can fit into that lift. The building itself remains the same. If we're talking about social justice, we basically should dismantle the building and create something that's fit for purpose. Okay, so what if education policy were actually shaped by this commitment to social justice? It's interesting you should say that. I've got some ideas. So there are five points. Uh, there could be more. One, uh, I'm somebody who spent my career basically in secondary education, but I was also a governor in an earlier setting. We very rarely talk about early years. The status is, is completely different. Um, the impact that you can have in the early years in terms of people's later outcomes is phenomenal. It's very, very important. So I'll talk about looking there for closing gaps. Curriculum, something that we, we all know about and um, so Jason, right? So we, that's what, what you were mentioning about curriculum, very, very important. Of course, we should have key knowledge about our country, past and present. And I would say, let's not forget empire, actually. I think we should be including stuff like geopolitics, especially given it's Britain's place in it. Um, and of course, we should have skills to succeed in the world. That's, you know, that's my teach first person in me. So yeah, make everyone be able to be a prime minister or something. But I also believe that we should be ensuring that all sections of our society are represented in a fair and balanced way. Black people are in the curriculum, but I don't always want to be a slave. I don't want to be a slave all the time. Like, there's more to my experience than that. Okay, 
aside from that, I'm going to say that, um, especially in the current climate, a, a crucial part of that is sex and relationship education, or relationships and sex education, however you want to put it. Um, and uh, I was on a panel the other day about Section 28 and the implications of that, and it's been far-reaching um, and devastating for the LGBT community. So that's something that is currently on the radar. Free treatment of children. So obviously I've mentioned exclusions. I won't go too far into that. For treatment of schools. Okay, so um, Dan's helped to turn around many schools. But the truth is that in terms of Ofsted, schools in disadvantaged communities are much more likely to be given that requires improvement or um, special measures. That is disgusting. Mm -hmm. What used to happen, um, I think contextual value added was something that helped to do that, to help to address that. It, it had issues. Fair access and in terms of distribution of resources. We should not have selective education or private education if we are talking about social justice. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> you take that clock seriously. I, I, I'm impressed. <laughs> Did you want to quickly finish? Okay, well, I'm allowed to finish. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, in that case, okay, so this is my potentially um, controversial thing. I think in order for social justice to, to, be, to be serious about it, that everybody in our society has to be equally invested in education, every single person. So as I said, private schools would in that case have to be abolished and admissions lotteries would also have to be introduced. Why would I do that? Because we'd need to remove the myth and expectation of universal parental choice. I say a myth because it absolutely is a myth. Mm -hmm. The choice is really currently only for parents with social or economic capital. That is the absolute truth. So if education policy is to be shaped by commitment to social justice, then it has to be designed so that it works well, equitably, and you have the same opportunities and great outcomes no matter what your start in life is. So in terms of us as a room, currently, you know, if you were reborn tomorrow, so if you believed in reincarnation or whatever, and you didn't know what you were going to be born as, could you honestly say that you would have the same opportunities and access and fair treatment from others in education and in wider life as everybody else. Thank you so much. Let's give a round of applause to our panelists. Well, that was enormously stimulating, wasn't it? And Aisha's last points um, about what she would do uh, have set us off with some, uh, you know, uh, um, policy ideas. And I love the fact that um, already some of these policy challenges are coming into play. Um, lotteries, the, the issue about... Um, equality of opportunity to access high-quality provision in a situation where, at present at least, you know, the education system is notoriously patchy. And lotteries, um, from my uh, experience in my own research, being very you know, popular in terms of... Um, uh, sort of charities like the Sutton Trust advocating for them, uh, and I myself have made recommendations to that in the end in the past, but of course very unpopular with parents for pragmatic issues about, you know, which schools your kids are going to end up in and are two of them going to end up at different schools, you know, etc. Um, with those practical questions. So I think that these are, this introduces uh, another almost like the practical challenges, uh, whether it's for teachers and policy 
policymakers to really think about what is an incredibly um, challenging uh, set of dilemmas. But I am going to put back to the other panellists um, what would... We've heard Aisha's sort of list of um, suggestions of, 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 of the things that she might do. If there was one thing about our education system that you would uh, think would improve social justice and you were uh, a policymaker, what would you do? So one thing to each of them. But, but, but starting with you. Good question. Um, I would probably utilise positive action in a, more, in, a, in a more effective way and ensure that there was a greater diversity of educators to reflect the society we live in. Because I think that that is really important, particularly from an intersectional point of view. Fantastic. So representation, yeah. but also perhaps addressing some of our recruitment and retention yeah, issues at present. Sure. Thank you. Um, I probably pragmatically try and get every policy education policymaker or person in a position of power to get an understanding of what a social justice value or mindset would be, because I think that shapes so much it, what you do that that's the practical thing I'd do. Thank you. And Dan? I think it's really important education comes out of a political space, and so I think if I could introduce a policy, it would be that there is a, a wider group potentially outside of parliament and outside of elected officials who who steer education and therefore it is about actual stakeholder voice and and genuine academic research rather than the rhetoric and quite frankly false promises which do the rounds every time there's an election thank you and given that it's my last uh, debate i'll also throw in my tuppence halfpenny worth which is uh, driving equality across schools to equalise them and detract or, or diffuse the competitive uh, element of access uh, at the moment that um, so colours uh, our system in terms of reproducing then uh, inequality in terms of demographics in, in, in the ways that you were saying. Um, over to you, the audience. I'm sure that you have uh, a thousand burning questions. As usual, we'll take them in, in small bursts in the round. And if in each, in each case, you can start by saying who you are. And if you keep the questions short and the answers pithy, we'll have time for more of them. So a show of hands, anyone who's got questions for our panelists. One here and one over here to start. Thank you very much. Um, we have an education system which is very driven by data, and Dan, you already mentioned accountability. If we had an education system that was driven by a commitment to social justice, what would be the key outcome or data you would want to know from schools to actually see if they are delivering on that promise? Thank you. Thanks. Sorry. Sorry. Hi, thank you very much. I just wondered, um, you said what you would um, prioritise in terms of uh, putting social justice at the centre of policy making and transforming what we have now. If you were um, a head teacher of a secondary school, currently a state secondary school, how would you use your agency to start making a change within the constraints of current government policy? Thank you. Do we have one more? This one here. Uh, 
Hi. Um, I wondered if any of you would support sort of reforms to teacher education to reflect this as well. So perhaps more of a social, sociology of education focus as part of that to consider these broader factors in society. Thanks very much. Okay. Um, so perhaps um, we should start with uh, Dan on data and accountability. So are there data measures that you actually find that you would want to retain that you find useful? Um, some aspects of data, data is useful in the sense that it does record what's happened, but it isn't necessarily useful to then assign a value to what has happened. And within the accountability structures we've received uh, within education, I think one of the issues is a lot of educational leaders have gone along with it far too much. And I was having this discussion a few weeks ago because within our trust, we have 15 key measures of how we're doing and one of them is data and accountability driven. And the reason is actually a lot of the focus increasingly from the OECD, even around PISA, is not just on the educational outcomes in that data aspect, but about the experience of children. And isn't it interesting that whilst we have climbed for league tables in terms of performance, look at how happy our children are, or aren't, in fact. And I think actually with data, if we can look to, if we can, let, let's move away from data to information. We need to look to information that actually codifies the quality of experience for children, as well as the outcomes to move away from the, those unhelpful binaries, which is, you know, I, I did very, very well in terms of a data measure of my own outcomes at GCSE and A-level. I wasn't a very happy boy. Thank you, Daniel. Aisha, you were almost a head teacher, assistant head. Yeah. What would you be, have, have been prioritising had you been? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not anti-data, to be honest. I think... Um, if I think about some of the young people that I taught and like, people in my family, they were failed by the education system. You know, there was poor expectations of what they were supposed to do, and it was okay because it's all right for those children, but not for our children. So, to be honest, I'm all here for good outcomes and data, very much so, uh, but not at the expense of everything else. Um, so, related to Dan's last point, you know, uh, yeah, I did pretty well at school and I went to a good university. My parents had never been to university, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I was suicidal in my second year of uni. So, yeah, I was a success story, but I also had a lot of stuff going on. I don't know how successful that is. So in terms of measuring things um, for the person who asked, I would suggest that we, if you broaden what it is that has seen a success, that's very important. Um, so they, we should be aiming for young people to do well so that they can um, provide for themselves and their families and have great choices. I think that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, but alongside that, it shouldn't just be what happens at the end of school. So um, before this, Dan and I were talking about the kind of charter school movement, which a few schools in the UK have based themselves on. And the data from that suggests that children do very, very well in school because of the structures that are imposed on them. When it comes to university, they basically completely bomb. So we should be looking at much longer term success criteria and that would very much change how people started to do things. Thanks so much. And um, the final question was about teacher education. Um, we're in the IOE. Do, uh, uh, do either of you have uh, comments to add there? 
Obviously, as a sociologist of education, I love the idea of having more sociology of education <laughs> on uh, teacher education. I, I would love teacher education to just also be longer and have more space for thinking, have much more about inequalities and social justice on there. Um, so that's, yes, I would agree with that. I also think, just in relation to the last one, I think not just thinking about what, what data, but also what you do with it. Exactly. So I, was really, I went to a really interesting talk the other week about um, the no-stakes inspections in Chile. And I just think there's other ways of thinking around these things and that can be a bit more expansive and reflective and useful. I would second Eloise as a sociologist of education. <laughs> More, please. Um, I suppose one of the things that um, I think is really interesting about teacher education, having done it myself, is it's very didactic. It, it has a very structured way of what you're supposed to do in a particular classroom setting. And I suppose what I'd like to move towards is moving that particular vehicle of pedagogical learning and bringing it into the 21st century and moving it away from you know, traditional forms of teaching and engaging students because the students that now occupy our classroom spaces, you know, they move beyond that idea of a traditional student and you can't use a one-glove-fits-all model for all types of students you teach. You, know, you still have situations where you know, teachers aren't adequately prepared to teach the multi-diverse classroom and I think that that is quite important in the current space and times that we're living in. Thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a huge, rich array of, of, of issues emerging here. Um, well, we'll have not take another round of questions in any case, and then I must take some comments from our uh, uh, virtual audience. So, Caroline here, a lady here, a gentleman on the right, my right. Caroline Gibbs, I used to be a researcher here. Uh, Louise touched on it just now, but the thing about data is, we have to be clear, we need data, we need some measures. It's what you do with it that's the issue. So it's league tables that are driving all sorts of the unhelpful outcomes that we're seeing in schools. The most recent one being the increased number of 15, 16 year olds who are off-rolled. I mean, that is, that is um, shocking, actually. So data's good. It's a question of how you use it and what you do with it. Thank you, Caroline. So, Hi. Uh, we voted in this room to say that uh, social justice is, is more affected outside of school than in it. it. It could be a bit depressing for us. You know, one of the, the big... The biggest challenge that, say, local councils face when they're trying to support vulnerable people is getting to those families and getting them to walk through the door at service at provision centres. Um, sorry about the noise. I seem to be static. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got, you know, uh, still 11 years now where everyone goes to our schools. And it's maybe a bit more than that. I don't know what I'm doing, sorry. Um, I just wondered if, if the panel has any good news stories uh, about ways that we're tipping the balance so that schools are affecting social justice more. I, I feel like, Dan, you almost had not a great story about your school experience, but I'm sure that you're, you're trying really hard to do something different. I wondered, uh, you know, there are a lot of teachers in the audience, if there are things they could do uh, to make that change. Thank you very much. And there's a gentleman behind yeah. Uh, thanks, that was very enlightening. Um, my question is based on the, on the name of this series, a Debate. I want to play a devil's advocate a little bit and I wanna, I'm puzzled a bit because some of you mentioned 
that education is too important just for politicians or politics to uh, play a big role in it. But you didn't mention any other stakeholder. And for me, one major player is the teachers union and how they influence politicians and influence the rhetoric around the education policy. Um, so my question to you is, um, what do you think is the role of teachers union in this um, social justice um, ideal? And at the same time, how, I mean, some of you have experience um, in, in the teacher um, dynamic. Um, um, how would you deal with them in order to achieve this goal? Because I come from a region, Latin America, that has faced for decades um, a challenge to deal with teachers union to actually let education reform happen. And I'm sure that's something that happens around the world. Um, so I'm just um, puzzled by your argument that it's mostly politicians and not uh, other stakeholders. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, so um, we've got, uh, first of all, um, would either of you like to comment on the point about off-rolling? Yes. Um, I, I believe within our system there are some per perverse incentives for school leaders to make what are effectively... Um, decisions against both social mobility and social justice. Now, that is about individual leaders perhaps moving away from their integrity, and that is not okay. But equally, within the high stakes accountability, I have watched a generation of head teachers get fired for the last inspection. And some of us who work in spaces of um, special measures or requires improvement schools for disadvantaged, you know, communities. Every time you take a school on, you are taking the gamble with your career because one inspection can indeed finish that career. And that is incredibly difficult. I am not excusing it at all. But I think within our system, when we make everything about the high stakes rather than no stakes, then we are driving a lack of well-being in our entire system. Because it isn't just the leaders who make certain choices, it's also of, you know, classroom practitioners and teachers who see children leave their classrooms. And it's very interesting that once you look at the PISA results today to account for those 15-year-olds who have exited the system, who are overly represented by disadvantaged pupils, it starts to really tell us a story. Just very briefly coming to your point, and it does address the stakeholder point, I think the whole point is the school gates need to almost come down. And so uh, in, within our trust, we now have over 100 parent volunteers who work in our schools. And that isn't taken away from the paid employment of teachers or teaching assistants, but it's actually about giving opportunities for parents and carers to be part of the education of their children, also learning some additional parenting skills themselves, giving, especially in the communities that we serve, opportunities for for adults who haven't necessarily been successful in education to build a CV, a skills basis, and to get a reference more than anything sometimes because that isn't there. And I think we need to re-look re at our schools as that beacon of the community, which isn't there just to affirm the system, but is there to transform it. And therefore, if we look at schools as the, the real beacons of, of social justice and therefore social transformation, then that has to be about working with the communities that you have which also means keeping the children in your schools in your schools. Thanks, Dan. Um, Aisha, any good news stories? Um, okay, so I think schools can do a lot, um, or else I wouldn't have stayed in teaching much longer than I was expecting to do so. Uh, I think 
often when you have panels like this, or you know, if I could speak at certain places, it's on the variation of, yeah, but what can I do? Or what can I do to affect change in X, Y, Z area? The truth is that you can, we can affect change in terms of whatever sphere of influence we have. You know, all of us sitting here influence some people in some way. Some of you are trainee teachers. Um, you can influence people on your course. You will later on influence young people. When I was a teacher, uh, initially I taught 30 children. Actually, I probably taught 100 and something children because I was a math teacher. Um, and it's kind of, okay, so you do that. Then I became a head of the department and I could affect like a thousand children and how math was taught for them. What was I able to do in that case? Um, in my school, so I taught not very far from here. My first school was in Islington. And um, it was a school with uh, high levels of deprivation uh, near a very big estate with, you know, fairly multicultural, the general London thing. Um, and what did I decide to do? I decided, related to your experience, about, you know, young people need great experiences as well. Yeah, we could hammer them, hammer them with maths all the time. Of, you know, we were going to teach them well, of course. But I decided that we weren't going to use the budget to buy some new textbooks because, you know, maths is pretty much maths. It hasn't changed that much. <laughs> so um, we, I decided that we would make sure that every single kid who came into our school would have an interesting extracurricular experience related to maths by the time they left year 11. That was my personal choice. I was lucky to have the, um, you know, support from the senior leadership team at that time to be able to do that. And that was me affecting change in my area. So we can do things as educators. Um, and then, you know, when I was on SLT, then obviously I tried to affect things then. And later on, I tried to affect things at a policy level. Um, so I don't think we should feel demoralized. We can affect things, but that also means that those of sitting here who are policymakers, you have the opportunity to affect things at scale. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, Becky's going to go off to EEF, congratulations, Becky, and um, you know, produce reports that actually will, you know, some people are going to take notice of and use to change things. So I think what we can do is not to say, uh, Ofsted, blah, ah, mm -hmm. uh, my head, blah, uh, like always pushing it to somebody else, like, no. What can I do? What can you do? What can we do? I think that's very important. Thank you. Uh, Jason, you were going to com comment on the union question. Yeah, I'll just uh, keep it um, brief. I was just going to say, I think in terms of unions, I think one of the things or their main function as a, as a stakeholder, I guess, is holding you know, government and their policies to account. So I think that becomes a really, really important thing. I suppose the one thing that, you know, it's safe to say that most teaching unions, you know, um, advocate for is greater access, greater quality, better conditions for workers. You know, even if we think about the UCU um, mm -hmm. uh, strike last week as an example, you know, the main essence of that was really around kind of people on precarious contracts, you know, how all members of professional staff within that space are treated um, and the poor outcomes for those who may, be, who may be at the other end. So I do think kind of the purpose of unions as a major stakeholder is really, really important because I think fundamentally what they do is hold people to account. They shine a light on particular issues that in some cases it, politicians turn a blind eye to. And I think that's probably the kindest way I could word it in terms of politicians. Mm -hmm. 
I think um, the point is probably that different stakeholders can be invested in different ways, and I think we see that all the time. And obviously, another uh, key uh, uh, layer of sort of stakeholders here is also parents. Um, and I think it's really important to recognise that sometimes we can be. Uh, it, just as I was sort of saying about the complexity with lotteries, mm. that ultimately often, I really liked your point earlier about the pragmatic versus the utopian, um, that things can be in competition and actually we're not in a perfect world and sometimes there are contradictions too. Um, so I think your contribution about kind of local circumstances is also really important and, uh, and that was interesting. I, dis Did I disagree with something about the um, stakeholders bit, can I say? Mm, please. Yeah, okay, so... Um, sorry, Louise, but I don't... I don't agree with you about the, you know, taking out of politicians. I mean, that's part of their job. Um, and, you know, they're supported by a raft of civil servants who actually know quite a lot and they're very well versed. They don't listen to them, but they are supported by them. Um, so I... And also, you know, we're in the midst at the moment of what I personally think is a bit of a mess because we had a referendum on things that people don't understand what they're talking about. So it's kind of, you know, people voted on Brexit and we are now in, like, a massive mess because people did not have the background to understand what they were voting for. And I think education is super, super, super important. And you will not have people understanding the complexities and nuances, I would say. So I don't think I agree with what you said, um, although I can see where it comes from. Sorry. Was that me? No, but Louise, about, oh. about um, not having, about, you know, we should take it out of... Um, Oh, yeah. Be yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, uh, a load of other people who are not elected should be doing it. Like, I, I don't know if I agree with that, but I do agree that it shouldn't be party political because it's un un unpopular. The stuff oh. that we have to do is unpopular. So, yeah. Louise. Sorry, Louise. Do you want to comment on that or, or on any of the other things that have been raised? Um, yes, although we're sort of agreeing not party political. Not party yeah. political, yeah. yeah, but not like randoms who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> no, I, I, I wasn't saying like, no, I wasn't, going, I wasn't going for a random model. Um, I, I was just going to super briefly come back on the good news story one. Um, so I think one of the, the most rewarding things that I think I've done in, as part of our um, research is working with teachers in primary and secondary to co-develop a social justice way approach, a teaching approach for teaching science. And it's just been... Lovely, you know, really important learning for us. It's been really rewarding just seeing that shift that you can see in young people in the classrooms from finding something completely alienating to feeling that they have something to say, that they have a voice, that they're valued, and the shift in working with the teachers, feeling that they're getting back to teaching for something in a way that they believe in and that feels meaningful. That, for us, is what partly keeps yeah. us going as well. That, that's really good to hear, Lou. And um, I think it's also worth adding uh, uh, something that um, I brought up in a recent debate. We often forget, because we focus on, quite rightly, on uh, the many inequalities in the British education system. But of course, we remain um, an outlier in OECD terms of one of, I think I'm right to say, only a third of uh, schools across the uh, uh, school systems across the OECD, which is basically... 
most of our schools are comprehensive right through to 16. And we take that for granted, but it makes us actually unusual globally. Um, so that's something we do really well. Of course, it's what we have to look at is internally within what happens within schools and sometimes the segregation that happens there as well. Um, I've got a few um, uh, responses coming through from social media, including, of course, our poll response. Um, the, the question on the poll was, what does the notion of social justice say to you? And 74% um, supported uh, the answer, equality of opportunity. And 26% supported the answer, equality of outcome. Um, we also had a couple of critics to that. Uh, Roger Tickham uh, says access to a good life should be the priority. And Liz Atkins says neither. That, that, that binary is far too reductive. So we remain on our theme of binary busting uh, this <laughs> evening as well. Um, we have a couple of other comments. Um, Ellen Martinez uh, suggests, haven't heard the speakers uh, use human rights to frame social justice. Why? Um, and Teacher Toolkit says, if we want to support all children, not some, we must unpick the bias within our exam system. Um, we must promote all training and pathways rather than su supporting one being better than the other our education system will con continue otherwise to perpetuate inequalities. And of course, that does bring in, um, you know, another topic of debates that we've had here about, um, you know, the age-old binary between vocational and academic uh, knowledge in our system, which of course is a, a sort of key theme here. We've probably got just a, a one last round of very quick-fire questions, if we may. This lady at the front has been waiting a long time. We've got another just behind. So uh, if increasing social justice involves a higher probability of downward mobility for rich people, like middle-class people, so how do you persuade ordinary rich people uh, or middle class to <laughs> join the battle for social um, justice and how do you still um, keep them motivated in their uh, schools or workplace if their opportunities and resources are redistributed to the poor? Thank you very much. Good question. And we had behind here. Um, very much along the same lines, I've talked a lot about um, groups which are disadvantaged and grassroots movements, but if we are to change anything, how do you take away you know, or dismantle privilege and power? Brilliant quite last questions, and I'm sure that everybody here will want to have uh, a piece of that. So um, down, the, the facing up to the, to the need for downward mobility to facilitate upward mobility, and um, the implications for uh, uh, middle class or more affluent families and how we can encourage uh, generosity and parity. So um, perhaps I'll start with Louise, last person last time. Um, yeah, great questions, thank you. I suppose one thing would be, I'd try and focus on dismantling the structures that maintain the privilege and produce that. Um, so, like, um, your really good point about, you know, private education, the high stakes exam <coughs> system, things, you know, things like that. I think if we, that does require buy-in from people who are obviously in positions where they're likely to have something to lose. Um, 
so I, I don't underestimate that as an, a challenge. It's not an easy task. But I think we have to, we have to try and keep chipping away at it. I think it, it is really difficult. I think that's the thing that makes it so hard because everything is set up to reproduce inequality and it does require... So I, I don't have any brilliant suggestions beyond that. Well, the moral buy-in is important, isn't it? Aisha, what would you say? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's extremely difficult to do that um, because even if you can accept it for yourself, if you're a parent, I speak as a parent, you don't want to have it for your children. You always want things to be better for your children and that's where the rub comes. So the only way to do it is to reframe what we consider to be success in society. So as long as success is governed by um, like economics um, and there's unequal access to it, then you're going to want to hoard access and create as many chances for yourself and your family and the people you care about. There is no way around that. Everyone feels like that. You know, I mentioned about private education. Personally, I don't have any philosophical... I'm not opposed to it, but that's a logical conclusion if you want to get to social justice. So... Um, yeah, I think we have to reframe what success is. And then, I was just, as, as the question came up, I was writing down, like, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Yeah, exactly. But in some ways, they kind of do if you start to explain that something's going to benefit them in some other way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my lifetime, uh, we've seen the dismantling of apartheid. Now, why did, why did F.W. de Klerk go for that? you wouldn't have thought that would be a reasonable thing to do. Um, now, presumably, there was some other impetus behind that in terms of, OK, well... And the same thing for slavery. Like, we often hear, oh, you know, Britain abolished slavery, da 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 Yeah, but it was losing money, actually. <laughs> so the kind of thing is, if we can say that the society as it's currently set up actually doesn't benefit rich people as much as they think it does, it does in terms of money, but maybe your children are mentally ill, for example, or they're not happy. So if you can change the frame of success, then I think you can start to dismantle power structures. Thank you. Um, maybe just a one-sentence answer from each of you. Jason. Oh, I was going to say, um, in terms of kind of dismantling privilege and power, I think one of the things that's really important is, I guess, you know, whiteness is a big structure of that. But I also think um, labour is an important um, aspect to consider. And more importantly, he undertakes that labour. So when we're talking about race or racism, which is where a majority of my work is in, I think it's important to acknowledge that the labour of that work, which is often unremunerated, is done by women of colour and people like myself um, and white uh, middle-class men um, and women benefit from that. So I do think it's important to acknowledge that in terms of dismantling that privilege and power, because we've spoken a lot about how we kind of redistribute that responsibility as opposed to it being on one group of people to you know, remove themselves of a burden they never asked to have in the first place, which is obviously racism. Thanks. Uh, just very briefly, um, it won't be by using the master's tools. And the fact around that has to be, we do need to reconceive the purpose of schooling to be away, as you're just saying, from this concepts of success to actually, to actually look at it from what we want our society to be based upon and we have to at some point in this country move beyond what is essentially a Victorian paradigm of, of, of how we structure our society and how we value it. Thank you. And on that beat note, I do think that people are very motivated by the concept of fairness 
Mm. Um, it's not, not for everybody, but I think a lot of people are. So, and, and actually the benefits, for example, of social mixing and so on that benefit all of us. Um, so I think that dual traction, possibly the ways to go. That's been enormously uh, stimulating, thought-provoking, challenging. Um, I want to thank all the speakers. Uh, it's, it's been a really rich uh, debate. I'd like to thank particularly Dan and Aisha for the difficult personal experiences that you've both articulated. It's very moving. Um, and before I finish, I must also um, thank... Kate and Emma for their tireless organisation of these debates during my time as director. You do a fantastic job. It's a brilliant resource for the public, for everybody, for the audience here. So thanks to both of you. Thanks to the audience. Thanks to the fat panellists. Do join me. 